Well, UBC, it's wonderful to be here with you. Uh, Kristen and I are grateful for your ministry. We're grateful for the many years that we had with you. We are grateful for all the ways that you pray for us. So many of you often send us texts throughout the week saying that you're praying for us. I mean, even just this morning, even this week in preparation to preach the word, just constantly hearing from you all. We are extremely grateful for you and for your partnership in the ministry. And so Ozark Baptist Church in Bentonville sends you its love. We are grateful for the partnership that we have had with you all. Uh, over these past two years since we planted up in Bentonville. And uh, without you all, we would not be able to do that. And by God's grace, we're making wonderful progress up there. And so it's been wonderful to be, to be able to see God's work in and through uh, the life of our body, to be able to get to hear from even your own pastors here, come up and preach, even to get to see many of you uh, that would often visit and even just encourage us on in the work up in Bentonville. So we are grateful to God for you. It is an absolute blessing uh, to get to be here with you. And I am ready to have some fun in God's word. But before we do that, we have got to pray. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we give praise to you that by your word, you create life in us. Lord, we ask that you would create life spiritual life in those that do not have it today that are here right now. Lord, we pray that you would take your word, that you would convict us of our sin, that all the little crevices of our hearts, Lord, that you would expose that with the light of your word. Lord, we ask that by your mercy, that through the preaching of the word, you would conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, that we would see less of ourselves so that we might see more of him. We pray that you would do that very thing right now. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if someone were to ask you who you are, how would you answer them? How would you answer that most basic question, who am I? What would you say actually defines you? Many are going to try to answer that question by describing what they do for a living. I'm a teacher, I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer, I'm a master electrician, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm an analyst. They define themselves by their work because their work gives them a sense of self-worth. Others will try to impose an identity upon you, they'll label you because of the way that you act or the, the place that you are from. I often get labeled automatically being from Harrison, Arkansas. For those of you Arkansans in here, Lord willing, praise God, there are still some left in Northwest Arkansas, especially where I'm from. And yet still more often within our culture today, identity is defined by looking inside oneself. That it's up to you to just discover and to determine your true self. And in this way of thinking, our identity isn't something that's, that's given to us it's actually something that's created by us. It's not something that we receive, but instead is something that we can actually achieve. And so you discover yourself by following your heart. And so the answer to the question, who are you, is, well, well what are your hopes and dreams? Your hopes and dreams are going to tell you exactly who you are. And this gives us a false sense of purpose, that we're the masters of our fate, that who can rewrite the stars 
in our life. The sad reality of this is that it actually assumes that you know what you want, though your desires contradict themselves. Not only that, but what happens when the harsh realities of life tear down those hopes and dreams that you have had for so long? What happens when you actually achieve what you desire, but it leaves you more empty than even when you first started? In a recent Netflix documentary about the downfall of the famed Texas A&M quarterback Johnny Menzel, there's a point in that documentary where Menzel describes the emptiness in having everything, when everything is never enough. He says this, I had every single thing that I could have ever wanted. You have money, you have fame, you're a first round draft pick battling for a starting quarterback position. And when I got everything that I ever felt I needed, I was the most empty that I had ever felt inside. Friends, following your heart can actually be quite heartless. It can be quite heartless. When you think about identity this way, we fall into the trap of looking to the world to fulfill what only Christ can satisfy. We look horizontally to define what is only given to us vertically. Paul David Tripp gives a helpful analogy that defining our identity horizontally is like looking into a carnival mirror, right? You probably know, you've done this before. You, look at, you go to a carnival, you look into those crazy mirrors, and you have a forehead that's the size of a giraffe and your chin's the size of a balloon right? You've probably done that before. And the point of that is that though you see something of yourself, it's all distorted. It's distorted. This is what happens when we look for something in creation to define who we are, to create or achieve an identity that can only be given to us by God. In our sermon text today, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the early 60s AD, Christians who are feeling the pressure of living in a culture that's not sympathetic to Christian values. Where following Christ does not gain you cultural clout, but it actually comes with a cultural cost. Where being a Christian actually hurts one's status in society rather than actually helping your status. So what message do you think these Christians actually need to hear in that day and age? What message do you think you actually need to hear today. Well, it's in this context of suffering that Peter reminds us of our status before God, that we, that who we are is fundamentally defined by who God says I am because of who God is in and of himself. And so Peter writes to these believers to stand firm in the grace of God in a graceless world, and he doesn't begin his letter which is exhortation, like, let's get with it. You need to get on with it. He does not begin with exhortation. He begins with identification. Identification. Because understanding who you are before God is fundamental to withstanding the trials that are going to come when living as a Christian in a corrupt world. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Peter verses 1 to 2, and follow along as I read this introduction 
to the letter of 1 Peter. I am going to be reading from the CSB translation, so if you know some distinction there, that is why. 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, I think the main idea that Peter is really getting at in this introduction is this. The main idea of what Peter's getting at in this introduction is that God gives us a new identity that reshapes how we live in society. God gives us a new identity that reshapes how we live in society. And in this introduction, Peter identifies us as chosen exiles to describe who we are before God and who we are in the world. And so that's really how we're going to break this text down. Point number one, you are chosen. You are chosen. And point number two, you are exiles. You are chosen and you are exiles. Before we look at Peter's audience in our two points, though, I want us to begin with the author himself. I want us to begin with Peter. It says in verse 1 that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of the 12 apostles, which meant that he had authority to represent, to speak on behalf of Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We also learn more about Peter in this authority at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to look there. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder in witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Peter was not only an elder, he was not only just a, a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem, but he was a witness to the sufferings and resurrection of Jesus. Peter's authority was unique because he was an eyewitness to all that Jesus said and did. If there was anyone that was qualified to be able to write this letter about the hope of glory in the face of suffering, it was Peter. As one who witnessed Christ, was commissioned by Christ, his words for the church are not merely just good advice. These are not merely just good suggestions or just Peter's personal opinion on life. These words are binding for all of us as Christians. These words are the inspired and errant word of God. What he says about who we are and what we are to do is who we are and what we are called to do. But friends, would you say that you actually read the scriptures that way? Do you read the scriptures like that? If these words were merely good advice, we're going to be tempted to cave under the weight of cultural pressure when it comes to our identity. If this is just Peter's opinion, then what lasting help do we honestly have whenever we face suffering in our life? But Peter gives us his status 
as an apostle so that we can be confident of our status before God in the world. And the first thing that he says definitively about us is that we are chosen. Point number one, you are chosen. Like a typical Greco-Roman letter, Peter has stated that he is the author of the letter and he addresses his audience. And though the structure of this, of this intro is typical, its content is anything but. It's not typical at all. Right out of the gate, he calls these Christians chosen. Now don't miss the drama that is in this introduction. More than likely, the majority of these Christians that he's writing to are Gentiles. The places that Peter names in verse 1 are scattered throughout the, Roman, or throughout the Gentile territory of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And it isn't, isn't it interesting that Peter is actually the one who is writing these words to Gentiles in Gentile territory. Right? If you remember, Peter was entrusted with the gospel to the Jews. The one who ate with Gentile Christians in Antioch, and yet what did he do? He pulled back when those those Jewish Christians came from Jerusalem. And then what do we see in Galatians 2? But him getting a rebuke by Paul for it. The one who the Lord chose to reveal the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of redemption in getting to see the first Gentile convert in Cornelius in the book of Acts. That's who's writing this letter to these Gentiles. This Peter begins his letter by declaring that these Gentile believers are chosen. What a word to begin with in calling these Gentile Christians chosen. It's a loaded term. It was the word that was used by God in the Old Testament to speak of Israel as his chosen and elect people. And now Peter is using it and takes it up and applies it to these Gentile Christians. Those who are not God's people are now God's chosen people through faith in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 9, Peter makes this point again whenever he refers to the church of Jesus Christ as God's chosen people. But why? Why are they God's chosen people? Why are they the Lord's chosen people? Well, the word chosen in the New Testament is most often used to speak about God's elect who are chosen by God to inherit eternal life. And Peter really further defines what we see in that word chosen, which is the doctrine doctrine of election. And he further defines this doctrine of election with three phrases in verses one and two. Three phrases that I want us to consider He's going to give us the basis of our election, the means of our election, and the result of our election. And so first he gives us the basis of our election there in verse 2. Peter says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. When Peter uses the word foreknowledge right here, he's not merely just speaking about God knowing information about Christ, God knowing information about his people ahead of time, right? That's certainly true We already know that. But often in the scriptures, to know someone is used interchangeably with loving someone. To set one's love and affection on them. Not because they're lovely, but because he loves them. This word foreknowledge is getting at God's covenantal love. We see this idea in Genesis 18, verse 19. 
God speaks of his covenant with Abraham. And he says, for I have chosen or known him. We see it later with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. To be foreknown is to be foreloved. God's plan from eternity past was to set his sovereign, saving, a love, an election, and affection on those who deserved eternal death. And so those who are foreknown are foreknown in and with Christ, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world in chapter 1, verse 20. It's how Peter speaks about Jesus. And so right here, Peter is setting the record straight. The true people of God are those who are chosen. They are foreknown by God. Not like that of Israel as a chosen nation, but in the ultimate spiritual sense, they're chosen in Christ. Friends, Peter is teaching us that our identity as Christians is not ultimately rooted in our family, it's not rooted in our ethnicity, it's not rooted in our nation, our sexuality, or achievements or status in society. It is rooted in the sovereign initiative and plan of God to set his love upon you in Christ. He didn't set his love upon you because he knew that you would love him as if his love is somehow dependent upon our love. No, he chose you because he foreloved you in Christ before time began. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how you view yourself right now, but you are no accident. You are absolutely no afterthought to God. You are the object of his loving concern in Christ from all eternity. So the world may hate you, but God foreloved you in his son before the foundation of the world. There is something that actually goes further back than the hate of the world, and that's the love of God for you. This is the basis of our election. But how does that election actually get applied to us? The second phrase that we see right here, the means of our election. Peter says that we are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, the word sanctification is often used in two ways. The most common way that it's used uh, is to speak about our progressive sanctification, the process by which we become more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. That's progressive sanctification. The other way that it's used is to speak about our positional sanctification, where the Spirit sets us apart as holy, positionally, before God as his own possession. And we can see that Peter is actually referring to this positional sanctification right here because of the context in verse 3, where he speaks of our new position as those who've been given new birth to a living hope, or I think in the ESV, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so right here, Peter has in mind our conversion. And so the way that God's election is applied to us is through the means of the Holy Spirit setting us apart to God as his holy, as his holy people. But what does that result in? The third phrase. The third thing that we see right here, the result of our election. Peter gives us the final phrase. We are chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. When we first read these phrases, it can be quite confusing, honestly. 
I mean, why does obedience come with being sprinkled with the blood of Christ? But we've got to understand the background of what it means to be sprinkled with the blood. And it comes from Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8. And in that passage, we see Israel at Mount Sinai entering into a covenant relationship with God. And they promise, they pledge their allegiance to God. They promise to obey him and to submit to all of his commands and all of his ways. And in response, Moses sprinkles the people with sacrificial blood to symbolize God's acceptance of them. But Peter is saying that for God's people in Christ today, we enter into a covenant relationship with God as we pledge our obedience to him through initial faith in Christ, and we are sealed, we are cleansed, we're forgiven, not by the blood of bulls and goats like in Exodus, but instead we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in this verse, Peter is describing our salvation where God cleanses his people's hearts through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. What was foreshadowed at Mount Sinai is now our reality in Jesus. And friends, the reality of this salvation that we're seeing right here, the reality of this salvation can actually be yours through faith today. Outside of a relationship with Jesus, we are dead in our sin. We are condemned to an eternal exile from God. But you can enter into a relationship with God through faith in Christ, whose blood on the cross cleanses us from our sin and seals our eternal acceptance before God. Friends, maybe you're one who's been running. You've been running after the wrong kind of acceptance and status your entire life. But understand that pursuing the world's acceptance at the expense of God's is only going to lead to your eternal rejection. The world may say that it loves you, but only God's love will stand the test of time because it is etched in eternity. Friend, there is far better news for you today than the world accepting you, your friends accepting you, your peers and coworkers accepting you. And it's that the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from your sins so that you may be eternally accepted by God the Father through faith in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. But the question is, will you turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus today? Will you do that today? Only Jesus can gain us acceptance with, with God because only Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God. Friend, if you want to talk more about that after the service, I would love to have a chat with you. Find me after the service right down here. I'm more than happy to chat with you more about this glorious gospel and what it means to live for Christ. For us as Christians in the room, I hope you see how practical the doctrine of election is for your life. We may think that election is just a topic for theological debate. And it certainly can be a hard and difficult topic. But God means for it to be highly practical for us. Think about this. Why would Peter intro this letter of encouragement to believers to persevere in the faith? Why would he begin his in, this intro with election? Out of all of the places that he could have gone to try to encourage these Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire suffering persecution... 
He decides, you know what? I'm going to begin with the election. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what they need. Now, you and I, when we first think about, man, what's really going to help me persevere to the end? It's highly unlikely that we're thinking about the doctrine of election. But not for Peter. What is it about this doctrine that encourages us to stand firm in God's grace when things in this life get hard? Brothers and sisters, when God has established your status, when he has established your identity in eternity, then no amount of suffering or persecution will ever undo that. It won't. The doctrine of election comforts you because though the world may reject you, God has already chosen you. For those walking through a season of loss right now, maybe the loss of a job, the loss of a relationship, of a loved one, the doctrine of election comforts you because even in loss, you still have the assurance of God's love for you. You have that assurance. For those of you in college, knowing that you're chosen by God, it prevents you. It prevents you from trying to erect an identity on your own or trying to have the culture impose an identity upon you, a false identity that is unattainable, that is only going to leave you empty and disappointed in the end. You don't have to run after that identity. God has already given it to you in eternity in Christ. For those trying to minister to your neighbors, knowing that God foreloved you, it gives you confidence to keep witnessing to coworkers or neighbors when they honestly just don't really care to hear what you have to say to them. It encourages you to keep sharing the gospel because your hope for fruit does not ultimately reside with you. It resides with the God who calls people to himself. For those who are fighting sin, the doctrine of election encourages you to keep fighting because you know that God chose you by setting you apart as holy to himself. It helps you to persevere when you fall because you know that the one who loved you before the foundation of the world has actually called you to this. It is worth it, and he will preserve you to the end. Friends, I could sit here and go on and on and on about all the different applications and implications of the doctrine of election. I'm sure that many of you are probably thinking even right now, well, he could have mentioned this, he could have mentioned that. Well, yeah, we could keep going on and on about that. The doctrine of election may be controversial in the world, but it is not before God. It may make you uncomfortable, but God wants it to comfort you. When you face every fiery trial in this life, he wants it to give you confidence as you witness to a hostile world. Friends, there's a reason why Peter began his letter this way. He knew that hard days were coming. He knew that hard days are actually here. And if we're going to be salt and light witnesses, then we need to be firm on who God has declared us to be, even from eternity. So Christian, who are you before God? You are chosen. You are chosen in Christ. And because you are chosen by God out of the world, well, that's going to give you a different identity in the world. You are now in exile in this world. Point number two, you are exiles. 
Peter's writing to those that he says are living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, in Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And that word for dispersed or diaspora right there was, co- was a common word used to speak about the Jews scattered throughout the world after their exile in Babylon in 586 B.C. But in verse 1, Peter is using that term to speak about all of God's chosen people who are scattered in the world, whether they're Jewish Christians or they're Gentile Christians. And interestingly, each of the places that Peter names are regions throughout Asia Minor. These Gentile Christians are not scattered throughout places that they have not known. These are places that they've grown up that they know all too well. And yet Peter says that they're living as exiles, sojourners and strangers in these places that probably throughout their lives they've called home for them. And so clearly Peter is not using this word exile in a literal sense, like a refugee who's displaced from their homeland. Instead, these Christians are exiles in a theological sense. Unlike Adam and Eve and Israel after them, these Christians aren't exiles because of their sin. They are exiles because God has saved them from their sin. Right? Understand the context that we just got done talking about. That they are chosen exiles. They're exiles because they're chosen by God out of the world that is actually opposed to God. They live in a world that they don't belong to, that they're not to fall in love with, all while longing for a home that they can't see but yet wait and hope for. That's what it means to be an exile. Friends, Christians are exiled because God has given them a new heavenly citizenship, a new identity, a new heart with new loves, and a new way of living. This world is no longer their home because this world is opposed to everything that their newfound faith is all about. So when Peter speaks about being a chosen exile, he's speaking about living and longing for the eternal city of God as we live in the temporal city of man. And brothers and sisters, this status as God's chosen exiles is not just for Christians in the first century, but it's for Christians in every single age. It's this identity that Peter says actually reshapes how we live in society today. Over the past decades in America, Christians have enjoyed some level of cultural clout, right? I mean, I think we would all probably agree with that. But now that that umbrella, in some sense, has been removed, secular society views Christian beliefs as dangerous. It's not that somebody would say that they're wrong. No, now they're actually dangerous. If you declare that Jesus is the only way to God, that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, that's not going to gain you a lot of respect and notoriety in society. It's going to gain you a lot of flack. And so maybe with where our cultural climate is today, you don't feel as at home in America anymore. Well, friends, Peter wants to reorient you to your identity as an exile in Christ. You are a pilgrim in a foreign land, an exile who should never truly feel right at home in what the scriptures say is this present evil age. We shouldn't expect society's respect and live as if this city of man is an enduring city when it's not. Friends, it's normal for the Christian to feel out of place because you know what? It's actually been that way all along. Part of what Peter is doing in this intro is reminding these Christians 
how their circumstances map onto the life and the suffering of Jesus Christ. He uses the same language to speak of us as he does of Jesus. If you know that, you begin to look at the intro and then you begin to see all these themes carry throughout the book of verse Peter. Peter says in chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In chapter 2, verse 4, we read that Jesus was chosen, that he was honored by God. Not only was he God's elect, but he was also an exile who was rejected by the world. Chapter 2, verse 8, we read that he was a rock of stumbling and offense to those who rejected him. Jesus' own people did not receive him. His family opposed him. And he even declared that foxes and birds had more of a home in this world than he did. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is God's chosen exile. He knows what that identity means to the fullest extent. On the cross, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one from whom all eternity knew the love of the Father and yet was exiled from his presence to deliver us from the exile of our sin so that we might be reconciled to God and enter into his presence. His exile secured for us our eternal home with God. Brothers and sisters, when we sign up to follow Jesus, we are joining him in exile. But when we do, we not only sign up to share in his sufferings, we get to sign up to share in his glory as well. It's been said that in a world seemingly of seemingly unending shame, opposition, struggle, weakness, affliction, and persecution, the certainty of future glory is the unstoppable heartbeat of our enduring hope. As Christians lose their status and position of power and influence in the world, we don't have to assimilate to the culture's agenda, nor do we have to isolate from it. Instead, we get to engage it by living countercultural lifestyles that emit the fragrant aroma of Christ. When we walk around seeking to do good and suffer for it for the sake of Christ, we're putting off the aroma of heaven to a dying and destructing world. If we suffer as Christians, we don't have to be ashamed of that, as if our identity is somehow beholden to a public opinion. Instead, Peter tells us to glorify God in having that name as Christian because we are identifying with Jesus, the chosen exile, an identity that's not generated by us, but is instead given to us by God. In those days that our sojourning gets tough, and it's going to, for many of you it is right now, let's not forget that we are not alone. Peter isn't just writing to individuals that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. No, this is a circular letter to churches throughout modern-day Turkey. And so the person, the, the person bearing the letter is going from church to church to church in a circle in this whole region that he's naming right here in verse 1, and he is reading out Peter's encouragement to them. He does not refer to us as a single exile in verse 1. He says that we are living as exiles in the plural. Because of the chosen exile, Jesus Christ, there are now many chosen exiles around you. Just look around. 
You have many other pilgrims, many other sojourners on this journey to the celestial city, to your heavenly home. And so, brothers and sisters, you belong to a church that is made up of other citizens of heaven. And in this community, you have the opportunity to give one another a foretaste of heaven on a daily and even weekly basis. And as God's kingdom people, we should seek to build a community that stirs up faith whenever we are feeling complacent, that redirects our hope whenever we feel dejected, that encourages us in love when we feel as if our love is running cold. Friends, the church will outlast every single empire that this world will ever see. So dig your heels into the soil of the local church as you journey to your heavenly home. It is one of the means of God's grace to actually get you there, to bring you home. For those of you who have joined recently, just even within the past two years, if you joined UBC, there's going to be a temptation, right? Now kind of being out of UBC and seeing it. There's going to be a temptation in a church this size to just come and just gorge yourself on incredible preaching and teaching week in and week out, right? That's why you're here. You agree with that. You know that. But there's going to be a temptation to just come and gorge yourself on that content and then just go home throughout the rest of your week. I want to encourage you, if you're new to UBC, to press further into the life of this church. There are so many lesser priorities that you're willing to expend an inordinate amount of time and energy on at the expense of prioritizing the church, which is actually one of God's given means, one of God, a God-given means to you for conforming you to Christ and getting you home to heaven. Friends, where might you be able to prioritize a relationship in the church that is focused on discipling one another? Where might you be able to prioritize a day of the month where you're willing to open up your home for hospitality and bring other members in and neighbors as well? Maybe you're not currently serving anywhere in the church. Where might be a place that you can serve and you can prioritize serving others even at the expense of your own time and your own energy? Friends, committing to a body of believers, that's not a detriment to you. It's not a waste of your time. It's going to allow for you to taste heaven more often. It prevents you from trying to find your home in lesser things that you are going to constantly be bombarded with throughout the rest of your life. When you're wrestling through a season of discouragement and a brother or sister puts an eternal perspective on your situation and they remind you of the character of God and his care for you, your eyes are no longer set upon the hope of failure. Instead, your eyes are now set upon the hope of glory, even if you fail in this life. When you prioritize hospitality, and you have people in your home, and they're coming in, and they're sharing stories about God's grace in saving them, you're getting reminded that your hope is not dead. Jesus is very much alive and reigning and still at work in the world today. Your hope is alive. And he is at work in people's lives to call them to saving faith in himself. Friends, this is part of what it means to live as exiles in a world that is hostile to God. 
And as Peter says at the end of his greeting, it is going to take God's grace and his peace being multiplied to you through one another to make it home. I want to conclude with an early Christian example of God's grace and peace being multiplied among his people, which I think is worthy of imitation today. A hundred years after Christ's death, there was a famous letter written to a man named Diognetus. The way Christians are described in it, I think, during this time, I think gives us a great picture of what it looks like to live as chosen exiles in a hostile world. It begins to put flesh in in blood to the picture that Peter actually is writing about in his letter. And so listen as he describes these Christians in this text. He says, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death. And restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. Friends, that was written about Christians a hundred years after Christ. My hope and prayer, and I hope that it's yours as well, that that right there would be true of every single one of us and of all biblical churches today. May that very thing be true of us as we journey to our heavenly home as God's chosen exiles. Let's pray together.